we continue through our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Colossae. Look at Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin our reading in verse 12 together. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in heaven or things in earth. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to come together as your people, as your church, as those who you have called out for your purpose, as you would reveal your glory in the world through the grace that has been worked through the redemption in Jesus Christ in our lives. Lord, we are grateful for all that you have done. We are thankful for uh, the privilege it is to gather as we do this day. We thank you for the Word of God and how you use the Word of God in our hearts and in our lives to continue to conform us to the image of your Son as you have purposed to do even before time. And God, we thank you that you are faithful to that which you have determined to do You are faithful, Lord, as you demonstrate your eternal purposes in this world in which we live. And you've called us as your people to be a light that we might grow and be rooted and grounded in your word, in the truth of Christ, and that that truth might shine forth from our lives, not only in what we say, but as well in all that we do. So we pray this morning as we open the word of God, may you give us understanding and discernment. May we have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive of that which you have declared, that which you have privileged us with in your word. May we see Christ as he is revealed, and may we have a greater appreciation and thankfulness and praise from our hearts unto you because of not only what you have done, but more importantly, because of who you are. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you, and be seated. Last week, if you were with us, you recall that we We're looking as we continue through our study of Paul's prayer, which is one of his signature styles within his epistles, in which Paul will usually introduce himself by name, and then as well he will uh, speak of his uh, of praying for the church, for those to whom he writes, and the prayers vary from time to time, obviously. But you'll find in both the Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, as we saw some months or a year or so back or more now, uh, as well as in. Uh, Philippians, that the prayer is very similar in nature, and we'll see some of that again this morning. But yet, you recall that we began to look at this, this truth of God has qualified us, made us meet to be partakers, or He has qualified us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a tremendous statement which Paul made, and we really focused in on verse 12 on last week. And I want to review just a little bit of that, of course, as we continue to progress. Now, we will not 
deal with the entirety of the text we read this morning. Again, last week we just dealt with verse 12, so we're not dealing with 13 through 20 today, but we are going to read through that and and reference some of that as we work through the text again this morning. We observed in verse 12 the point of this epistle in which Paul transitions from his prayer for the church at Colossae to praise for the person and work of Christ. And there's a reason Paul does this, and we'll see that in, in the text this morning. Last week, I pointed out two questions which we, are, which we drew from verse 12. First of all, for what is it that Paul gives thanks? Or for what does Paul give thanks, as he mentions in verse 12, when he says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The verb phrase used, hath made us meet, as I mentioned a moment ago, means to qualify or to make sufficient. And the verb qualified is defined as having the qualities, accomplishments, etc., that that fit a person for some function or some office or the like. And while we, as we have seen, we saw this last week, you know this truth biblically, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, we see this clearly declared from from that point forward throughout the entirety of Scripture, that we are disqualified by Adam. So we have an inherent sinful nature that we possess from the time of conception. We are sinful. David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. The script Psalms also tell us that we were shapen in iniquity. And so we know that sin has tainted us. Sin has, we are are infested by and with sin. And so we are disqualified by Adam. Adam has disqualified the human race. No man is qualified. All of us are disqualified. But yet, that being through our inherited sin, sin nature... But yet we are also unqualified by our own actual sins. And so this meaning, this is referring to the sins, theologically speaking, actual sins are the sins of which we are guilty. That which we do, which we commit. Now all this comes forth out of a sinful nature that again is is inherited by Adam to us. We've inherited this sinful nature. And so this inherent, this indwelling sinful nature is the source from which our sins come forth and are manifested Man, uh, remember, all, all actual sins in reality are manifestations of the sin of unbelief. And that's from the garden till today. And so we see actual sins coming forth, which are manifestations of our unbelief or unbelief of mankind. So we are disqualified by Adam, unqualified ourselves by our own actual sins. And so because of this, we are infinitely insufficient to meet the requirements of God's holiness, God's righteous standards, God's righteousness, His law. As Paul described in Romans 3.23, of which you are very familiar, where Paul writes concerning both Jew and Gentile alike, he is saying, for all have sinned, specifically saying the Jews are are guilty as well, that they are just as much under the condemnation of God as are the Gentiles. That was the problem the Jews had in the time in which Paul wrote that epistle. And so he's saying that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And what that means is they lack what is necessary for God's glory to be, it's not present and it's not being manifested. Now, let me speak to that for a moment before we move forward to remind you of this truth. Yes, we are absolutely created in the image of God. God created man, created Adam, and then created Eve out of Adam in his image. But since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, we are marred images of God. So though we are still in the image of God, it is a marred image That is the reason why the Scriptures, again, teach us so clearly all throughout, but specifically Paul mentions when he says in Romans uh, that uh, God is faithful in conforming us to the image of Christ, to the person of Christ. And so we are being reformed 
in that we are marred, so God is reforming us in the image of Christ, that his glory in eternity be manifested as we are in Christ, so Christ is in us, and that Christ now be living his life, demonstrating his life in and through our lives. So we find that we are disqualified, we are unqualified. However, God has made us qualified in Jesus Christ. For it is Jesus who is everything that we are not. Where we are insufficient, he is all-sufficient. And we find that he does possess all the necessary qualities, the character. He has accomplished the Father's will perfectly, and he is infinitely more than enough and all-sufficient. In Romans 8, 3, and 4, we saw last week, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Again, not saying that the law itself is weak, but rather saying that the flesh is weak and God's law, let me, let me remind you of this as well, uh, just a, a side note for a moment, that when we think of the law of God, and this is one of the great failures, obviously, that you see demonstrated uh, perpetually through religion, is that the law of God was given as though it's some list of do's and don'ts that God's saying, I expect you to live up to this now, do your best to do No, remember the law of God is God's declaration of his righteousness, his righteous standard and holiness, and he is saying, I will accept nothing other and nothing less than this, in perfection. So we are condemned by the law because the flesh cannot maintain the law of God. It cannot live up to God's holiness and God's righteousness. That being said... Paul says in Romans 8, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that or so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Again, that's a, that's a descriptive statement at the end, not prescriptive. So he's not saying, oh, say, you know, as long as you don't do this. No, he's saying those who have been delivered from the bondage of sin declared righteous in Jesus Christ because righteousness of Christ has been imputed unto us, that we then walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. We are not following after that sinful nature. We still sin, yes, absolutely, but the Spirit of God is He who empowers us and now is the source of our desires, not the flesh itself. The second question which we considered last week stems from the first, which is this. For what has God qualified us? Verse 12 goes on to say, giving thanks to the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The noun partakers means one who shares, one who has a portion, and the noun inheritance means lot or portion. So it's also important that we consider this phrase as the definite article, the, as you see. So it's that he has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance, not part of an inheritance or an inheritance, but the inheritance of the saints in light. And God has made us qualified in Jesus Christ to share in the lot or the portion which God has determined to give his saints. So then the question could be asked, well, what is that portion? Well, this portion, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ himself and all God's blessings in him. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul had written, as you recall, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Remember, Paul told the Gentiles that he wrote to Christ in you, the hope, the confidence of glory. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Remember Paul saying that? In this clay in which we live, these dirt vessels, this body, we have a treasure that is beyond compare. And, and, and it, it's invaluable because it is Christ that is within us. 
So this morning, we continue to examine this matter of the Lord taking, taking us. We who are disqualified, we who are unqualified, and making us qualified by and in Jesus Christ. So having answered the question for what has God qualified us, I believe it's important that we now consider and examine that which Paul explains in this text concerning the way we have been made qualified by God by asking the following question, which is simply, how has God qualified us? Because Paul is showing us this in the text. Now remember something as well. All of this is important, and we've already dealt with this in our overview of the book and introduction into the book of of Colossians. But you recall with me that one of the prominent issues of the day was that Gnosticism was beginning to uh, infiltrate the church. And so, in that, and Gnosticism itself, of course, saying that one of the claims would be, many claims, one of them being that man knows God through some mystical means. When this is not mystical at all, there's a spirituality to this, obviously. The, the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but this isn't something that's mystical in, in that regard. And so Paul here is explaining to this church at Colossae at a very, very important time in history and culturally speaking, in which he is declaring, of course, the preeminence of Christ. And he's not only saying that God hath made us meet. See, it's not something that we discover mystically or whatever, but God has done this work. And now he's going on to say how God has done this work. So how do we know God? How do we become, or how is it that we are made to be qualified, meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and light. So what is the process of this? And, and it's not given in depth in these verses. It's, a, it's mostly spoken, Paul speaks in a, in a very brief manner. He speaks in brevity concerning this. But notice what he says in verses 13 and 14. Speaking of, of God and of Christ, of the work of Christ, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of of sins. Now, we will further discover in this chapter that Paul will expound more so on this matter, which we did read a portion of this this morning, verse 20, but let's read verses 20 through 22. Skip ahead a little bit so you can see where Paul goes into a little more detail concerning this means by which God has qualified us. He says, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So we see here that Paul addresses more so and explains further in verses 20 through 22 how God has qualified us. It's through God reconciling us through the death, sacrificial death and substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And through the body of his flesh, by death, he presents us now holy and unblameable and irreprovable in his sight. That is the purpose in this work of reconciliation. And remember what reconciliation is. Again, theologically speaking, the definition would be that to reconcile is to remove the hostility that existed. So there is hostility that exists between God and man. And it's through Christ that God the Father, through his wrath being poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that God has exhausted His wrath for all those who trust in Christ. So there is no wrath that is reserved for me uh, by the grace of God and that work of redemption in Christ. But we find in these two verses, verses 13 and 14, which we read a moment ago, that Paul explains the process, though it's in, in in a brief manner, which was necessary 
to make us meet or qualified due to our fallen nature. So we are fallen creatures. We are marred images. God has qualified us in Christ. But what does that mean and how does that look? Or how, what is the means by which that was accomplished? Well, first we see that we had to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and translated or transferred into the kingdom of Christ. Verse 13, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now, the verb delivered, as used here, it means rescued. So God has rescued us from the power or kingdom of darkness. And the word power means authority. Hence, we can say kingdom, authority, power, because it's the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, if you will, the kingdom of this world, all of this that is evil, wicked, that is not the kingdom of Christ, not the kingdom of God, that is not of God, not of Christ, in meaning in, in following after and submission to him in a willing manner. We find that this is the kingdom of which Paul writes and which Paul speaks. And so he says, Who, Christ, our God the Father, hath delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated or transferred us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Paul stated in the previous verse that God has made us meet or qualified, verse 12, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That is directly in relation to what Paul is now saying in verse 13. Because now Paul is saying that he has delivered us from the power of darkness. But he said that God has made us qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul's statement concerning this inheritance in light in verse 12 is is an obvious contrast to the power of darkness to which Paul references in verse 13. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth concerning this very light and work of God in transferring us. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me say something about what Paul states in Corinthians. It's very interesting. Paul says, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. He's making a reference, of course, to creation. And he's saying when all was dark, when there was no, nothing present, and God spoke light into existence. Before he even created the sun, before he created the moon, before he created the stars, he spoke light into existence. God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Now, I think this is important in relation to Paul's analogy using creation and the power of God demonstrated in commanding light to shine out of darkness as it relates to having translated us or transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Might I say, I believe that Paul is somewhat implying here by virtue of the fact that that he compares the two using God commanding light out of darkness in creation to God transferring light out of the kingdom of darkness. Think about the power of God in creation. Think about God just speaking. And by the way, people often say, well, God took his finger and he molded the valleys. And No, he didn't. He spoke and it was. <laughs> and so God spoke and there it was. And the power of God in speaking. Think about the power of God in the Word of God, literally. In the spoken Word of God, in the written Word of God, in the living Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's power was demonstrated in a phenomenal way in creation. But yet, Paul says, as God shined, the same God who commanded light to shine out of darkness in the creation of the world and the universe and all that is, he says, that same God has shined in our hearts. It is that same power of God 
that has translated us. Might I say it takes that same power of God that it did to speak all things into existence to translate us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. It is a powerful... Hence, Paul says in Romans 1.16, we read the verse this morning together. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it, the gospel... And what is the, the good news? How is the good news declared? Through the word of God, as God has lived through Christ, and as God has spoken through the prophets and ultimately through his son, as now God has spoken through his word, as all that God has said for man to know has been recorded in his word. For it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. Again, I remind you of the simple truth that all who have truly been born again have at the moment of that new birth experienced the power of God in this salvation. This is a work of God. You can't translate yourself out of darkness into light. And let me say furthermore, you don't want to. Let me prove that to you. Look at John 3 for a moment. I didn't intend to go here, but look at John 3. Of course, you know in John 3... Uh, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And let's look at John 3. Let's just begin at verse 14. We'll read a few verses here. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Verse 18 tells us why. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Look at what he says now, that light is come into the world. Who is that light? John chapter 1, very clearly. This is Jesus. And men loved darkness rather than Light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Let me, let me give you an example of what, of what is being said here by John in this, in this account. That God sent Christ because men are already under the condemnation of God due to the inherent sinful nature and actual sins. So man is guilty and under condemnation. He sends Christ as the Redeemer. Say, oh, yes, yeah, so whosoever just believes in him should not perish and, and stop there as though it's something that man just does in transferring himself out of darkness into light. But what does Jesus or John go on to tell us here? He says, those who do evil, those who are not regenerate, those who don't believe are under this condemnation. And what they hate light and what do they love darkness and it's not just they love darkness and hate light but neither cometh to the light man will not come to light and why is the reason there's a good reason man will not come to the light because as soon as he is exposed or as soon as he comes to truth and righteousness it exposes his unrighteousness and men would rather run and hide then they would be exposed. Again, going back to original sin in the garden. What did the Lord say to Adam? Adam, where art thou? Where are you? And again, it's not a logistical question. 
as though God did not know where Adam was, but God was calling Adam out in his sin and causing him to stand before him in his sinful state because he had rebelled against God. And in doing so, he confronts Adam, calls him out, and because Adam was hiding, he didn't want to come out to God. He didn't want to see God. He didn't want to be exposed before God. And so he's hiding away. But thank, and look, this is the grace of God that he calls Adam out. That is the grace of God. It, it, remember, Romans tells us it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the goodness of God, the grace of God, the favor and kindness of God by which we are brought to repentance. And so this is a wonderful grace of God by, that Adam was even called out. And then we know that's grace. Why? Because then God slays a sacrifice and clothes both Adam and Eve. He provides for them that which they cannot provide for themselves. And so we see that, that this is important concerning this statement of light being translated from light or from darkness into light. And it's important that we understand that this is not something that man will simply do on his own, but this is the power of God. It is by the power of God that we are translated into the kingdom of his dear son. So it's through the light of God's glory in Jesus Christ, the face of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel, that God delivered us from the power of kingdom of darkness into light. Then we see, second, that we had to be forgiven of sin by redemption through the sacrifice of Christ. So it's not just God spoke and said, okay, let's just pull you out of darkness into light. No, there was a process. There was a, a requirement that was necessary. So Paul expounds further on how it is that God has transferred us from darkness to light or what is required for us to be rescued from the power and authority of darkness to light in verse 14. He says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And remember, anytime we see the word blood used in this context of the sacrifice of Jesus, it, it is synonymous with his death. It took the blood, the shedding of blood through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for us to be redeemed. Once again, it's important for us to remember that to be free from sin is only half of the truth of redemption or salvation, as it would be referred to, or sometimes many would use synonymously. For in redemption, we are not only freed from sin, but we are also freed unto righteousness. Again, Romans 6, 16 through 18. I want to remind you of this truth from these verses. Paul wrote and said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants are ye to whom ye obey whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered, uh, which was delivered you. Verse 18, being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. And that word servants there is the Greek word doulos, and it means slaved or enslaved. So we who were enslaved to sin are now enslaved to Christ. It's interesting because throughout John's gospel specifically, you'll find where Jesus speaks and says that if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And he speaks about true freedom being of him, not of any other. But yet we're told in Scripture that if we are in Christ and delivered from darkness and light, that now... We are enslaved. So how is it that we are free? Again, the context is this. We are free first from the bondage and condemnation of sin. But second, we are also freed unto life, Christ, and righteousness. 
something that man could never do apart from the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling within him. So it's through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ that we are forgiven. As Paul explained in greater detail in his epistle to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 1, 3-7, I told you that these are very uh, similar prayers. Jesus, or Paul wrote and said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So the means by which we were made to be qualified, of course, and there's so much more that could be said about this and so many places we could go to see this revealed and and explained in even greater detail. But God has made us qualified in Jesus Christ. That's what scripture says. He hath made us meet to be partakers of the saints, of the inheritance of the saints in light. So God has made us meet. He has qualified us in the person of Jesus Christ. But what did that require? It required that we be redeemed through the sacrificial, substitutionary death and work of atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might have sins forgiven. So then that brings us to the last question that I have this morning for you at this point in time at least, and that is, what did it require in one to qualify us? So we understand we've been made qualified in Jesus. It required his death, atonement of the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. But then the question is, so what would qualify one to be the qualifier? How is it that one could qualify us? Verses 15 through 20. Who is the image of the invisible God, Jesus, of course, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, while we do not have time this morning to delve into the depths of this portion of our text, I do want to introduce to you again the overall importance of this portion of the epistle and how it is related to what we have just discovered from the previous two verses specifically. Within this passage, we find that Paul provides the thesis for the entirety of this letter. As I've told you many times throughout Paul's epistles, there's always a thesis statement that is made within usually the first chapter that provides the entire emphasis and purpose for that which Paul has written. And we find in this passage, this thesis statement by Paul in verses 17 through 19. Let's read them again. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father in him should all fullness dwell. Paul here is emphasizing that Jesus Christ is preeminent. Again, people often make statements like this, well, you need to make Jesus first in your life. I've said to you before, you don't 
make him Lord, you don't make him Savior, you don't make him first any more than you make him creator. (laughs) He is who he is. He is preeminent. He's not preeminent because you see or recognize or declare or claim that. He is preeminent because God has declared him preeminent. He is above all. He is before all. There is none other to compare to him. We find that this is Paul's emphasis throughout the epistle, and it's fitting, especially regarding the attacks within the church, as I mentioned by large, that it was facing at this time in history in which the epistle was written. So while the preeminence of Jesus is always relevant, it was extremely important for the church at Colossae at that time in history to be mindful of this truth, as it is for you and me as well today. There's only one who was able to qualify us to make us qualified before God the Father, and that only one capable of such is our Lord Jesus Christ. The character and the person of Christ is incomparable with any other. It required all he is and all he has done to make us meet or to qualify us before the Heavenly Father. This passage further emphasizes how Jesus is the only one qualified to make us meet or to qualify us before the Father. It is only Christ and Christ alone. We cannot qualify ourselves. We cannot become qualified apart from Christ, who is the one who does qualify. And as you've read with me, verses 15 through 20, we see the truth of what was required. It is this preeminent Christ. It is the creator of the universe. It is the one who not only created all, but created all for himself. (laughs) Not only was it created by him, but it was created for him. This is the one. And it took his death, his burial, his resurrection, his sinless life, him coming into the flesh, manifesting himself in the flesh, that we might be qualified before God. Because we have no accomplishments to offer him. Again, remember Paul in Philippians 2, which we just went through this past, these past prior months, that Paul says in Philippians, all that I counted as righteousness, everything that I, my, 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 this resume that Paul presents, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, as far as touching the law, none, none who followed the law more so than, and then he says, I count all this but refuse that I might know Christ and win Christ. For it's his righteousness, not my own. And I have nothing of which I can offer to God to claim as righteousness. And that's what we have to understand here, that Paul is showing us that we are not qualified, we do not have the accomplishments, we do not have the pedigree, we do not have the, inher- or the heritage by which we can come before God and say, okay, God, here we are. No, we must be qualified. We must be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So if the Lord so wills, we will begin to examine the truth of this portion of the text we just read, verses 15 through 20 on next week. And the depths of the truth of the person of Christ, including his qualifications to be our our Redeemer. And we find that these depths and these truths are really inexhaustible. But it took such a Redeemer to deliver us from the bondage of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his dear Son, into the kingdom of light. Might I say in, in closing this morning that there is none to compare to such our Savior. For our Lord Jesus Christ is unequaled, He is unrivaled, He is unsurpassed. He alone is sufficient and qualified to redeem us, and it is Jesus Christ 
and in Christ alone that we have been made accepted. Ephesians 1, 5 through 7. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. It doesn't say God saw us as acceptable. Please understand again, he hath made us accepted. He has made us meet. He has qualified us in the only one qualified to be the qualifier, which is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. This is not something we can attain, something we can achieve, something we can accomplish, something we can do, but it is the grace of God by which we have been made accepted in the only acceptable one, the very beloved Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do 